Bitcoin, however, requires no sovereign. It requires no centralized authority that can be persuaded or coerced to abide by the dictates of the sovereign. It is a system that promotes the individual sovereignty of its participants. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody watching and listening wherever and whenever this podcast finds you. I'm your host, Dustin, and welcome to the Did You Know podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about the principles of Bitcoin, which is a rough draft paper that I've been working on for a while, and I wanted to release mainly because I wanted individuals to be able to comment, uh, give me feedback, and see where I may be wrong or misguided or right on so it just kind of depends and this is a working concept this is by no means something that i myself am saying i should be the creator of this is a consensus thing and i definitely want this to be a community-led effort and it is something i think is important and i'm going to lay out what i think are the principles or as i will explain the principle of bitcoin with the subset of principles that help to guide it to achieve its goal. So I guess we can just start off right away. And, you know, the purpose for a search for the principles of Bitcoin is in my mind the necessity for any movement to loosely define itself within positive goals to be achieved and not merely by what it opposes. The failure of conservatism can be seen using this very same failed strategy of negative achievement. Michael Malice, an author and political commentator, wrote that conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit, which is the hallmark of a movement defining itself by what it opposes. They then eventually adopt their opposition's policies in small pieces over time as their own and then call them victories, never quite gaining or ever regaining momentum or the upper hand. Bitcoin, by only pointing out the flaws in the current system, you know, the issues of trust and finance and the corruption of central bank policies, etc., etc., doesn't really lay the foundation for a movement aiming to shift the culture. And make no mistake, Bitcoin is about culture, not technology. No matter how sufficiently advanced a technology is or what it can offer, an immature or hostile culture to it will never fully embrace it or walk the road to achieve its full potential. Principles, whether highly defined or more nebulous, provide a stable foundation to build upon. Without them, you know, compromise becomes an easy crutch to lean upon to create short-term solutions that only end up betraying long-term goals. Rigid, rigid principles are not, however, without their own trade-offs, as they can easily lead to excessive dogmatism in the face of feeling outcomes and inability to adapt to the changing market conditions. The trade-offs, in my opinion, are worth it, though, as a movement um, or as any movement or movements, they more often fail from inside due to flagging consistency and less so actually from outside conditions. 
or at least they seem to do so before their cultural uh, relevancy has actually ended. To discover Bitcoin's principles, it's necessary to look beyond the technical aspects of something like proof of work as a technology or the more broader governance and consensus models and discover the why of Bitcoin versus the how. Principles are born out of need, whether a need for social cohesion, individual mental consistency, or other factors, but the need creates the incentive for the principles necessary to manifest themselves in reality. From that point, another need is created, and that is the need for tools to shape conditions necessary to make those principles actually prosper or at least not negatively impacted by the, the outside conditions. For example, if one of the principles you live by is to live a healthy, sober life, you may attempt to maybe ask the local bar owner to move to a new location given your need to remove temptations from your life. If that bar owner refuses to um, help you in your need to avoid temptation, um, uh, the temptations that conflict with your principle, this may compel you to move to a new location or practice meditation or other forms of mental discipline to remove the temptation itself. Your need to stay consistent with the principle drives your actions. Principle begets need, need begets opportunity, and opportunity begets creation. In Bitcoin's case, if the principle that was sought was a quality of outcome, or 100% equal distribution of wealth, then Bitcoin would never have been created, or at least in its current form, as it can't ever, nor really could any functioning economic system, exist with that as the guiding principle that it's serving. Another case to illustrate this would be something like high efficiency or pure complete efficiency. Efficiency itself is laudable as a trait, and a goal to strive to, to become as efficient as possible. However, the trade-offs of high efficiency or pure efficiency are not conducive towards a secure money, such as Bitcoin, as the trade-offs conflict entirely with the need for decentralization. And thus we have decided that elimination of political risk is more desirable and necessary than high or pure efficiency to serve the principle that underpins Bitcoin. From these examples, we can see that there are most definitely principles that if held as foundational would negate the very possibility of Bitcoin's existence. This is by no means definitive proof of the existence of principles or principle of Bitcoin. It's merely pointing out that there are certain principles that definitely don't fit in with Bitcoin. My concept of the principles of Bitcoin is one primary overarching Principle A, necessitating, necessitating the need for Bitcoin's existence, and with that, a subset of principles B that make Bitcoin not only possible, but workable. The primary principle in Bitcoin has always been something very simple in concept, yet almost completely elusive to humanity for its entire history, save for, say, individual statistical outliers. And this is sovereignty. Sovereignty comes from the Latin word to uh, Latin word super, which means above, which became sovereign in Old French and later combined itself with the Middle English word reign to mean by the 14th century, 
that which has authority to rule over. After 1715, the term evolved to no longer regard a monarchical figure with divine right, but more of the concept of these new independent states that kind of bore out from the former Roman Empire and Holy Roman Empire and uh, monarchical organizations. It's important to note that while we have become accustomed you know, in our modern age to independent states, these are really an aberration in the historical context. It wasn't until the independent states of Europe began to form that concepts such as individual liberty truly came to fruition. And this follows the natural progression of the concept of subsidiarity in Western thought as a principle of governance. Subsidiarity is a teaching within the Catholic Church which is the dominant force in Western spirituality, or was the dominant force of, in Western spirituality for many centuries. But it still influenced those religious and secular philosophers who came after, even if later they separated either theologically or politically. Subsidiarity can be briefly described as the best form of governance is always at the lowest level possible starting with the family unit and working its way up to larger groups. If it's prohibitive to provide the goods, and this is a virtue, not economic, if it uh, to provide the goods necessary for proper functioning. For example, it would maybe describe courts to arbitrate disputes as being better suited for being something that a community or town versus each individual family as each family's judge would be less objective in arbitrating disputes between families than if you had one outside of both social circles. This article is not really making a value judgment on subsidiarity as a tradition or philosophical end goal, but merely describing it for a better understanding of the historical context of the principle for the reader or listener in your case. The Catholic concept of the family unit being the most supreme unit of governance organization is only one real small step away from the concept of individual sovereignty and the principle of sovereignty as a good economic, or not economic when I say good, but an actual virtue good. Without getting into the weeds of the rights of, say, children versus the rights of parents and where does that actually split up and, and um, actually come to uh, come to a head, it would be natural to deduce that if sovereignty is seen as a good, the individual is an a priori starting, starting point for that concept. If a man wakes up naked and alone in the woods, one does not need any prior experience to understand he has the control of the faculties at his disposal, that he has a right to self-preservation against attack, that he should control the fruits of his labor that he alone creates, etc., etc., etc. If that man, say, fashions clothes from animal skins, he builds a home, he stores away food for winter, only he truly has proper claim to that property. If another man, say, wakes up naked near the cabin and walks to it, he has no claim, based on some imaginary social contract that the first man never agreed to, to take portions of his animal skins and his food, to live in the cabin, or to attack the man to attain those things. There is no unjust distribution or claim to partial or whole ownership of the other man's property or bodily autonomy. If the first man woke up the same time as a hundred others scattered across the wilderness, 
and made his claim on the land and property that he created for himself, others cannot claim higher levels of authority in the name of a community or state merely because he exists in some boundaries that they decide to create. The a priori deduction of sovereignty always rests with the individual and not with the larger cohesive unit. All claims of social contract over the individual and all its forms throughout history have been really the result of expediency in the group, whether it was for survival, growth, or power. The concept of principle, or the concept or principle of sovereignty is not one that is itself debated as whether it exists or is it proper, the debate truly surrounds the question of at what level should sovereignty exist? Should it begin and end? Such as the individual, the family, the group, the nation, etc. Even communists, which are the most pervasive and dangerous incarnation of collectivism, wouldn't argue that there are elements of sovereignty even within their system. The supposed end result of international communism, as it was imagined, was supposed to be some sort of stateless society no longer functioning as a Soviet-style or Maoist-style nation, but a horizontal system where, say, coal miners would collectively have sovereignty over their equipment and mines. So nearby agricultural workers couldn't just arbitrarily go over and take a shovel from the mine for use in their fields or vice versa. Personal property, such as your toothbrush, bed, or shirt, would be, say, respected. One could not wake up and go over and take someone's jacket from a coat rack. In this, we see that sovereignty is understood, but the a posteriori of sovereignty is embraced, albeit on false and dangerous conclusions, while the a priori is ignored. The expediency for bringing about a false conception of equality is what drives the collectivist to ignore the inevitable conclusion that individual sovereignty is the logical end result from even brief reduction of the concept of sovereignty to its foundations. If you recognize that sovereignty is a good, once again, virtue, a good as a virtue, not economic, as they, the collectivists do, albeit in small doses, they once, uh, then once must recognize that it is necessary to start from the root of where sovereignty lies. That being the individual and building from there. At this point, one can really not come to any rational conclusion other than only through con uh, consensual and voluntary choices based in one's individual sovereignty does any system truly have any moral or ethical legitimacy. It's important to note that all the major political ideologies ignore this, whether it's communism or, say, democracy. They all attempt to subjugate the individual for the expediency of achieving the a a posteriori and result they conceive as just. It is strange and a hypocritical case of self-inflicted blinders to even basic morality to prioritize any good over the sovereignty of the individual while claiming to be striving for the common good of the people that are made of the same individuals who it is self-evident have a right to self-ownership over the preferential outcome desired by one or more others in any society. Communism prefers the outcome of just distribution, while democracy prefers the outcome of majority, both claiming the good of, uh, good of the people as their mandate while ignoring the individual who is a base part of the people. 
as having agency over their choices and circumstances. If sovereignty is a good, then individual sovereignty is the greatest good to be achieved within that good. This concept of the greatest good for the greatest number inherently violates the greatest good of the individual, and likely then for almost, if not all, individuals within that system. If the greatest good is the individual sovereignty, then all manners in which an individual conducts themselves to maintain it is a moral good, with some caveats. And there should be no impediment to using tools that help the individual achieve that good. It's important to note, though, that people who are listening or see this understand that individual sovereignty is not synonymous with uninhibited pursuit of wants. I can want a can of soda, but I must either create it for myself or produce enough value to be able to exchange that value directly for the good or service I desire, in this case, in this case a soda. My individual sovereignty does not extend to the point where it violates another's sovereignty, as sovereignty is about claim on yourself and your property. It is a right, a moral claim against violation by any other, regardless of whatever magical prescription for a claim above that individual's. Negative rights, which are ones ascribing the immoral concept of ownership over something you have no claim to, cannot coexist with positive rights, claims against coercion by others. For example, a negative right of, say, universal access to healthcare claims that you have ownership over a healthcare provider's services, over people who create uh, products for the healthcare industry, that your demand supersedes their sovereignty to choose who they do business with and how they conduct their services. One cannot simultaneously believe in sovereignty in its truest form while supporting any negative right concepts. The popularity of negative rights in any culture or society is a very clear signal to its animosity towards true sovereignty. Individual sovereignty is also not synonymous with the so-called Benedict option of sequestering oneself from society or the services of others. In a society that held sovereignty as the greatest good, individuals would have to have the choice to delegate or would have the choice to delegate subsets of rights such as defense health food whatever to other people or other groups as they saw fit in a coercive free exchange you may choose to not shoulder the entire burden of your safety and security and pay for protective services or delivery of food sovereignty is not about every man as an island but about every man as a destination whose roads to and from are open to any form of exchange that they assent to and deem necessary for their survival or happiness. I also wish to clarify as a point that in this discussion, we are speaking in individualist terms, being a sovereign individual, which should not be confused with the so-called sovereign citizens movement, which has no correlation with this discussion or Bitcoin or really the, the philosophical concepts of sovereignty that we are discussing right now. Many will see this as an unnecessary aside, but I have seen the two conflated at times. The long and digressive explanation of sovereignty may seem tedious to some, um, wondering at what point we will see the place that Bitcoin actually has in it. But I could not make the argument regarding Bitcoin's principles without first do doing really a cursory overview of this founding principle itself. Moving forward, one does not necessarily need to agree 
that individual sovereignty is either the greatest good or that is a natural reduction of the minimal recognition and existence of sovereignty in your own, say, whatever your ideological uh, predilection may be. However, it is necessary to understand the argument for it so that you can better understand why I'm making this argument, so that you can understand why Bitcoin exists and my conception of this principle that Bitcoin embodies and then the sub-principles that Bitcoin has created. No one would argue that sovereignty didn't exist prior to Bitcoin. It certainly has in the affirmation, statistical outliers of individuals who have achieved it, or just merely as a philosophical concept that people have written and spoken about for centuries and centuries. Ludwig von Mises made a case for it in his 1949 tome, Human Action, while Oscar Wilde even defended the concept of self-ownership, which he called individual sovereignty, uh, in his 1891 essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. All successful ideas are organisms unto themselves. They are mind viruses that either spreads from one to another and to another and to another and thrives or languishes, slowly dying until the last host passes from this life, taking that virus with him to the eternal void of forgotten knowledge. Sovereignty is an organism, a belief system, a religion, if you will, that like all viruses must, when confronted with a threat to its survival, mutate and adapt or die. Viruses constantly mutate. The majority of the iterations are, die out due to lack of incentive responses in their prospective hosts that allow them to multiply. A small number do, however, survive and then thrive, creating a continued line from the past to the future of that virus. Sovereignty as an organism has designed, uh, devised many tools to ensure its survival and defense throughout history, from mere items allowing for equalization in combat, like the spear and firearm, to the proliferation of other hosts, uh, through the printed word, through the internet, and many, many other objects. My contention is that the latest iteration, the most recent mutation, is present in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, while an organism and a emergent religion unto itself, is not an a priority concept or truth in itself, but a manifestation of a deeper truth, a deeper principle, that being individual sovereignty. Bitcoin can be used to buy items, store value, connect people, enable meaning in life. But these are all really third order manifestations. Bitcoin is at its core, a tool for individual sovereignty, unlike anything that we have ever seen. Its magnitude really barely understand, understood even today. All of human history, we have witnessed that those closest to money's creation have prospered above and beyond their fellow man on the outside in a given society. It is precisely why it has always been the domain of chieftains, of, sh of shamans, of kings and states. Private money has existed, though, at times, but it has always been short-lived and, in the context of history, rapidly quashed by those same forces. Only those systems that augment itself that are only those systems that augments the power of the sovereign, that which strengthens the money that they control, are allowed to survive. Credit, and derivatives, loans, bearer bonds, all these sorts of things that we see in modern finance. 
Bitcoin, however, requires no sovereign. It requires no centralized authority that can be persuaded or coerced to abide by the dictates of the sovereign. It is a system that promotes the individual sovereignty of its participants. Bitcoin was not divinely created. Now, people may make the claim that Bitcoin or other ideas, tools, etc. were inspired by God for the purpose of this discussion. However, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with that concept. We do, however, all agree that Satoshi was not himself God in the proper context of the prime mover. He was not omnipotent, uh, not the omnipotent creator or divine being. Uh, Bitcoin was created to solve a problem. The problem being the inability of individuals to attain greater sovereignty over themselves when the system that facilitated the very ability for them to acquire items necessary for survival and thriving was dependent on the goodwill of those who controlled it. One could be cut out of the system, the fruits of their labor confiscated with no ability to appeal on just acquisition by that authority. Bitcoin has no appeal process because it precludes a need for appeals. It's an information network that allows you to occult the knowledge of your own sovereignty. Bitcoin is not precisely an economic good, as I've stated before, which is why many have had such a hard time precisely identifying or quantifying Bitcoin in economic terms. It is not strictly a commodity good or a fiat declaration from a central authority. It's merely a knowledge transfer network meant to communicate value. Control of the UTXO, unspent transaction outputs, that these UTXO sets is fleeting and only remains under your control as long as you can occult the knowledge to a better degree than anyone else. If you occult that knowledge poorly, another person in the network may gain access to it. This process repeating until the one who can actually properly secure that information acquires control and no others gain access to it. For Bitcoin to operate as a tool for individual sovereignty, it had to adopt the subset of principles that it did, those being money or value transfer and decentralization. If Bitcoin was centralized, its inherent weakness to threats of coercion, greed, or persuasion to acquiesce to powers working against individual sovereignty would have rendered it useless to achieve that end. Liberty Dollar was a project to create a private money in the form of precious metal rounds and certificates that were good for redemption of face value in said precious metals upon receipt. It was a mutation of the sovereignty mind virus attempting to thrive for new generations but the centralization allowed it to be coerced, which killed this mutated virus, proving that its design was flawed. Eagle was an, another example of a mind virus mutation whose centralization made it vulnerable. Decentralization. The first sub-principle of Bitcoin is decentralization. If sovereignty is the overarching principle that created the need, the incentive for Bitcoin to exist, there needed to be principles of Bitcoin that facilitated to be a useful tool to, to achieve its end result. As we have seen throughout this discussion, centralization is a trade-off that creates a weakness in any tool that attempts to manifest sovereignty for the individual using it. Bitcoin uses decentralization, the lack of overt authoritative leadership to its advantage, and that if one company that touches the network is coerced, persuaded, or destroyed, or falls to greed or ignorance, what have you, 
While it would have effects on, say, the network's value for a short period of time, something like Mt. Gox, it would not destroy the network of itself. It would merely die, that branch falling off, others to fill its place. All Bitcoin truly needs is one or more persons to run nodes to ensure its survival, the breeding pairs of the network waiting in dormancy for the right conditions to arise once again. There is, however, no sufficient description of exactly what decentralization is in this context. Was it Hal Finney and Satoshi? Was it the first hundred nodes? Was it the first 10,000 or the first million? The best explanation I can give is not that X is decentralized, but that X is decentralized enough when it reaches the point that the network becomes large enough to sustain itself against attack and or corruption by one or more multiple entities. Under this definition, I would venture to say that we have not quite achieved a network that is decentralized enough. Bitcoin has been publicly attacked by politicians, and it has been attacked by those from within who have a faulty view of Bitcoin. And regardless of whatever your specific denomination or viewpoint in Bitcoin is, each denomination views the others as a type of attack on Bitcoin, whether they want to say it or not. Bitcoin has not, however, experienced a true concerted attack by a nation state in the form of being forced into a fully black market network through whether it's legal, um, through uh, legalization, through laws and regulations, or more importantly, that a major nation state has not attempted that, as we know, to gather enough hash power to manifest the only attack that truly matters, the 51% attack on the consensus mechanism. We have definitely not seen the ultimate test of its strength in how it can resist a well-coordinated attack by a larger multiple state actor or actors. This will come likely at some point in the future, and that will really be the true test and ver verification of whether Bitcoin is decentralized enough. Money. Money is the next sub-principle of Bitcoin, although I refer to Bitcoin as an information or value transfer network. Even those who claim that you can own a Bitcoin only claim that ownership is specifically that of the private key, which is a 256-bit number that is a specific angle of a very precise line in an elliptical curve in the future Schnorr. Um, this is the types of cryptographic schemes that are used to secure Bitcoin. They do not claim, however, that you own the UTXO set. What is, or this is what actually people commonly refer to as Bitcoin. And what you transfer to other or others transfer to you. The UTXO set is only something you control for a period of time through knowledge of the private key. Ownership implies something akin to actual property, such as land, house, car, firearm, and orange. These are items that reside in the physical world that can be touched, that can be built and grown. Ownership does require a few prerequisites of which I draw on the examples given in Self-Ownership by Ben Armani. These prerequisites are knowledge of existence, ability to interact with, and finally, ability to to defend. It's not necessary to define these concepts in detail as it's already masterfully done in the book. In short, one must be aware of the existence of something to own it. 
You cannot own something that you cannot touch, see, hear, or feel. You must finally also be able to defend that claim, whether it's physically or with evidence to the contrary of a rival claim. The very concept of courts, arbitration, whether it's civil or private, develop precisely because those items that reside on our person or property can uh, or property can be taken unjustly by those without proper claim. These cor courts are meant to adjudicate competing claims on a piece of property. You cannot, unlike a private key, control the <clears throat> excuse me knowledge of an orange and occult it in a way that no one can ever take it. With enough guile and precision, one can break into the safe that you keep it in and take it, resulting in now a dispute. Math, numbers, on the other hand, represent the universe and ex existed prior to our own existence and to the existence of Bitcoin. You cannot copyright the pi equation as it exists in nature. It's transcendent, the equation just being symbolic representation of that which already exists. The numbers that make up private keys exist throughout the universe, but in your private key, they are assembled into a string that will unlock UTXOs. But you cannot own math or the number 5 or 56 or 5602 and so on and so on. No matter how many digits or characters you affix to it, you have no more ownership of it than a reduction of that number to any one or more parts. Another way to look at ownership in Bitcoin is to consider the concept of intellectual property, which, as you might rightly point out, is actually protected under law. This is my mind not an argument that Bitcoin is property because it more resembles IP, or since it resembles IP, than land or oranges, but a further argument actually against IP in general as a concept. If I come up with the idea of an electronic book, when I was eight years old, I draw out schematics for it, but never produce it, or even perhaps I do produce it, but keep it to myself. Does this mean that because I had the idea and a concept or, uh, or of an implementation of something that no one else should be able to produce portable books for digital um, content in perpetuity? Why then is 15 or 20 years considered reasonable, but 100 or 1,000 or eternity is considered ridiculous? The answer is that it's not. It's a, suggest a subjective assessment with no moral backing that was instituted, as I described earlier, for the expediency of the perceived common good. Why is me having an idea and declaring it or producing a prototype on YouTube publicly not enough for a claim, but blueprints and filing fees considered morally correct via the legal process? The answer is the same as before. It's not. It's merely expediency masquerading as virtue, superseding the right of an individual's sovereignty. Arguments for IP law usually boil down to subjective terms such as fairness or the need to promote innovation, which are no basis for a moral foundation of a society. My lack of proper housing does not necessitate a need on your part to provide me yours. Your lack to come to the market faster than myself with innovation doesn't necessitate a need on my part to wait decades to do so. You would not consider it moral for me to claim ownership of the idea of germination, precluding you from growing tomatoes. Why is a bendable screen then for a smartphone any different? 
The ability to occult knowledge of trade secrets rests with the companies and individuals creating them, not of the participants in the market to forget what they already know. If, say, I created a perpetual motion machine or cold fusion, able to provide endless power, but I occulted that knowledge to myself, told no one, I would have claim over that prototype sitting in my home. But would I have claimed to challenge another person's ability who came to the same conclusions as me at roughly the same time or perhaps years later? If I create a new religion that people are drawn to, can I stop them from practicing it personally or together or changing it slightly? Of course not. These are merely ideas. Ideas can, although often not, lead to creation. But you have no more claim on an idea of X than you do on the idea of hunting for food or gathering rain in a barrel. Once this is pronounced to the world, they are like dandelion seeds caught in the wind and they will travel over great distances. And once landing, you do not have claim to the property they inhabit or the fruits they create only because they originated where you reside or in the case of an idea spilled from your mouth. A private key is like this. If you keep the dandelion full of seeds hidden away from view, from all knowledge of its existence, you control the fruits it can unlock. If, however, you bring it to public knowledge and those seeds blow away, out of your control, you no longer have claim to them. If today I posted on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, or TikTok, the private key to my Bitcoin UTXO sets, I lose control of them. Whoever is able then, after that, to occult that knowledge the best after I do this, gains, gains control of what I once had. For these reasons, I do not believe Bitcoin is money by traditional definition. Money implies ownership with certain legal rights that in Bitcoin cannot truly be enforced. If you gain control of my private keys and I bring you before a judge, he can request you hand them back over. He can threaten you with punishment, but he cannot put a lien on your Bitcoin the same as he can with your house retirement or other property to ensure restitution. Bitcoin is a de facto bankruptcy first settlement system when disputes arise. If I owe you $100,000 for an unfinished job, I took your money and then declared bankruptcy, there's no restitution for you. If I take your Bitcoin, there's no restitution outside of my consent to use or give the private keys that control the UTXO sets you once did. If I send your UTXO sets to a burner address, no one in the world can ever recover them for you. You may say that you may say that uh, that the described civil proceedings could recover the assets in the form of liens, but in in the form of liens, say on your, your other property like your house, your car, your retirement. But this is extra network. This is outside the network. This is state augmented arbitration restitution. Civil authorities can go after your out-of-network wealth, but never the wealth held in the network. There's no mechanism for in-network on-chain dispute resolution. This is because Bitcoin cannot be censored or controlled. It has no central authority. Centralized authority is inherently necessary for such an act to even be possible. Bitcoin is at its most, at its most basic, an information transfer network that has now become a value transfer network. The information on the Bitcoin network has only the value that the participants in the system give. 
In 2009, when Bitcoin was released, it transferred information from the network to Satoshi as a miner in the form of block rewards. It then transferred information to Hal Finney when he joined the network in the form of block rewards. When Satoshi sent Hal the first transaction, it sent that information to the network that then updated the ledger state to reflect the information that Hal now had 10 more Bitcoin in his wallet. You can argue that this is the point where Bitcoin begins to have value as they begin to send transactions to build the network and test functionality, which if they had no value, they wouldn't have done it. Bitcoin, however, was not money by any definition of the word at the time that this was done or for a very long time after it. It was really not until Laszlo bought those two famous pizzas for hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin that Bitcoin did have its first real data point in price discovery. Until that time, it had zero value as money, but it had immense value to people participating as information as well as providing meaning to them. As an aside, this is where I diverge from Nick Zabo and what actually, I guess, apparently earned me a block by him. He argued that fiat was a collective fiction, uh, fiction while Bitcoin gold were not. That these, that Bitcoin and gold, were money based on pure merit. While I agree that Bitcoin and gold has more merit than fiat, money is still an abstraction by itself. It's an abstraction and requires a collective agreement a fiction, if you will, to earn consensus as having merit of value. Iridium and ruthenium are slightly less rare than gold, but more rare than silver. So why can you not find individuals who find the merit in those metals as money? Why can you not, or I should say, why can you not find people who find merit in those things, iridium and ruthenium as money, but you can find ones who do find merit in gold and silver? because it required a collective consensus, a cultural agreement that these things had merits of rarity. They were, they were difficult to attain. They were difficult to mine and mint. All value, whether money, faith, or technology is derived from, at its most basic, an agreement between people. The larger the consensus, the more value that it has. If Bitcoin was at its inception, not money, but was information and later acquired value, then we cannot consider what it is used for today or in the future as being what its prime essence is. Bitcoin has acquired or is acquiring as one of its uses the aspect of money. But at its core, it's information, and the network is recording, recording the transfer and current status of that information. In conclusion, principle A, sovereignty, begets a need for something like Bitcoin. Bitcoin begets a need for sub-principles or traits B, which are, which are decentralization and money. And these sub-principles or traits beget the need for tools to accomplish it. These tools have already been mentioned. The integration of proof of work, minor incentives, etc. In reverse, these tools facilitate the functioning of B, which facilitates Bitcoin providing the need set by principle A, sovereignty. Sovereignty has always been the principle that Bitcoin serves and enables proof of work, which has always been the mechanism that creates value in humanity. Well, I hope that you 
liked this episode on the principles of Bitcoin, please reach out and give me feedback, critiques, comments. You can go to didyouknowcrypto.com and find all the ways to find me. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also email me at dustin at didyouknowcrypto.com. Also, head over to supportmypodcast.com to find all the ways that you can support my podcast, whether it's signing up with Cash App, shopping through Amazon. Um, there's a million other ways. Biggest thing you do, leave a review on iTunes, subscribe to me on YouTube, and also at supportmypodcast.com. If you click on listener supporter discounts, there's a whole list of all the different discounts that I've gotten for you guys. It's absolutely free. I ask that you go on the mailing list, which will pop up, but it's not required. But all I use that for is to email you guys about brand new discounts once they go live. So thank you again for listening. Thank you for watching and have a great night.